Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. So, you guys, I've been a member of the American Press since... Wait, do internships count? Okay, if they do and since 1986 when I interned at KCBS Channel 2 News in Los Angeles. That means I've spent 34 years listening to just about everyone, and yes, that includes my father, blame the media for just about everything. What I don't think people out there know is that the greater number of journalists out there really just want to go to work every day and report the facts. There is one Fox News journalist I've watched for years, even before I ever got to Fox. And I always found him very compelling because without fanfare or loaded language, he reports the facts, no matter how unpopular. In these weeks since the 2020 presidential election, he's gotten quite a bit of attention for calmly and systematically fact-checking and peeling off many of President Donald Trump's claims of widespread voter fraud, while also being equally as surgical with the other side as well. With all the drama still swirling around the election, I thought, let's bring in one of the most trusted on-air reporters in America who has an incredibly compelling backstory I want you to hear. And so I welcome Fox News' senior correspondent and anchor, Eric Sean. Eric, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Oh, Liz, thank you so much. I'm honored. I'm thrilled. Thank you. Well, I mean, I don't know how to live up to that billing, but... <laughs> Sincerely, thank you. Oh, yes. And he's humble, too. How has your life been since November 3rd? Uh, nuts, crazy, uh, kind of insane, um, in the middle of a whirlwind. And you hit it right, uh, the nail on the head. I was down in Philadelphia uh, on election night, anchor on Fox News on the weekends, and then went right down to Philadelphia where they were counting the votes. And uh, it's a whirlwind of accusations. Uh, assertions, uh, intense emotions. And as you say, we've been just trying to cut through it all to get the tr to the truth and, and show the facts. There is so much emotion on both sides. As you're right, just try to get to the facts. And it can be difficult, but it's what we are, what we do. And it's frankly the mission, not to sound too self-serving, but I believe it is the mission of journalists in this country to uh, get the facts out and right don't let the emotions or partisan politics affect you. Or opinion, your own opinion. But describe election night. And I'm not talking the beginning of election night. I'm talking into the wee hours, what you were doing, what started to happen. I, I We did report and it was predicted that President Trump would take the lead, uh, that there would be a slew of red states. That's what we thought. Uh, when Fox News uh, made its controversial call to call Arizona, I was shocked that it happened so early. And you suddenly start thinking, oh my God, is this gonna be a, a, a huge landslide for the Biden-Harris ticket? And as it went on through the night, it kind of evened out, but uh, the president was ahead. But I knew generally by all the mail-in votes, the millions of mail-in voting that, that states and localities have to start counting the votes. And what was stunning to me is some 
localities in Pennsylvania, some counties, would not even start counting the mail-ins until Wednesday morning. So I knew it would go for days and days. And sure enough, by Wednesday morning, uh, it still was up in the air. And it wasn't clear when uh, one of the candidates would reach the magic number of 270 until Saturday afternoon when I was standing on the street outside of the convention center. And I got a picture of the scene. On one side, there are the, the, the Trump supporters and they have flags and they have uh, signs. And on the other side, across the street, separated by pens and the police are there, are the Biden-Harris supporters. And they have their Biden signs and their Harris signs. And what I thought was frankly hilarious is the Trump supporters would be blasting out on loudspeakers as loud as they can the best of Trump speeches, right in the face of all the, all the Biden supporters. <laughs> and then suddenly in that afternoon, there was screaming and yelling and hollering. And, and, and when it was called and crowds of more people just started flooding Arch Street in downtown Philadelphia surrounding me and our live position. Uh, and it was just kind of mayhem uh, over the next couple of days. Did you get nervous? I mean, I've been in positions in in very sort of anxiety-inducing situations. And way back in the day, I was outside criminal courts for the OJ verdict, mm -hmm. and there were huge crowds there. It could have gone either way against the press. Mm -hmm. Did you ever feel like, mm, we got to be careful here? It's in the back of the mind. Uh, I've been I've covered uh, riots and other other uh, and I was there that day at Camp OJ at uh, the OJ Simpson trial, too. But I was up, up, up on the stand and um, I, I was in the back of my mind of could. Uh, yes, there always is when you're a street reporter. But I was mostly concerned of everyone crowding around me because of a social distance. You know, when you when a lot of some people, most people had masks on, some didn't. And this crowd, what I thought was so funny was they're screaming and yelling. Uh, all around me, about 50 people. And I turn around and I said, back up, six feet. I don't have, a, I, I got to take my mask off for the live shot. And everyone sh immediately was silent and totally obeyed what I had to say and, and stepped back six, <laughs> eight feet. Uh, and, and when I started my live shot, I was kind of disappointed because they didn't say a thing. They were quiet, but it was, uh, it was quite a scene, uh, I think, on both sides. That's the power of Sean, Eric, <laughs> Sean, the power there. Okay, so so much of the controversy, even a few days later, swirled around Pennsylvania with its 20 electoral college votes. It was the battleground state, right? Uh, it became yeah. clear the Trump campaign would make Pennsylvania sort of the epicenter of its move to contest the election. What was it like on the ground there? And when I say that, I mean several days out when we started to see these Rudy Giuliani news conferences, a couple of them, which got quite a bit of attention, and I'm not sure for the reasons that Rudy or the Trump campaign would have liked. There was a lot of tension. There was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of anxiety uh, because you had inside the convention center, they're, they're methodically counting the votes. A lot of accusations against the Pennsylvania, Philadelphia city commissioners. They're the ones who run the elections in Philadelphia, right. especially aimed at the lone Republican, Al Schmidt, who's a city commissioner, who went on 60 Minutes and talked about death threats. And you had that, that sense of that anxiety with the allegations coming from Giuliani and the Trump camp and from the president himself tweeting out, uh, frankly, falsehoods, saying that the observers uh, the, the Republican observers were being blocked and not allowed to watch the vote counting, that they were out on the street, that they had to have binoculars, that they were being kicked out, 
that uh, the president at one point said, and he came into the briefing room about how the election was being stolen from him, that they're counting hundreds of thousands of illegal votes. And, and, and that's not true, frankly. It, can, I, it, can I stop you yeah, there? Absolutely. The latest that I keep hearing is, and of course, President Trump came on Fox News on Sunday and said, it was disgusting how they had to have binoculars because they were pushed away. How were you able to debunk that claim? With the truth and the facts, and here are the facts. Observers from both sides were present and they are put in a certain area by law. And they started at seven in the morning on Tuesday of election morning. That's when they start counting the votes. And there were Republican and Democratic observers together in the same place. Now, they were initially put 25 feet away behind a, uh, a pen. And I interviewed and talked with one of the Republican observers and, and others. Uh, this one took, took a picture for us of his view. Can you see the votes? And no, not completely. The place is like a football field. So is there some uh, sense that, well, you can't watch the votes and look at every vote? That's not what they're there to do. That's not their job. Under the law, an observer is there to do just that. Observe. You know that picture that we saw, the video of the huge room, and you can't really see what they're doing? That's basically kind of what they see. And you certainly can't see beyond the football field. But if you don't like that, change the law. Uh, The Trump campaign went to federal court, and the judge said, all right, you, you could move from 25 feet to six feet, social distancing. But under the under the law, under the federal rules set, you are they are not allowed to touch the votes. Mm-hmm. They can't handle a vote. They can't talk to a, a, a they can't challenge a vote under the Pennsylvania state law. They are there, as a federal judge said, to watch, not to audit the vote. And that's where the, this starts to get all mixed up and in, in that all oh, there's no one's looking at the votes. And that's not true. Every vote that came in was op- opened up checked with the voter rolls, with the specific information, just like any time anyone votes at the voting place before they were put into a counting machine. Did you ever see binoculars? No, I didn't see anyone with binoculars. I'm not saying that could have not happened. It could have happened when I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. And no, I did not see anybody, quote, kicked out outside. Uh, There were, I am told, a few uh, observers, Republicans who were booted, uh, because they were breaking the rules, such as trying to take videos, but they are, are told what the rules are before you go in there. Now, someone's going to say, well, they were not allowed to take videos because they're trying to hide something. No, they're not trying to hide something. There are specific rules that apply to both the Democrats and the Republicans. And when people would talk about that, they would never say in these sound bites, oh, by the way, they're, they're Democratic observers standing right next to the Republicans, folks. In fact, the federal judge said, uh, issued a, a, a ruling of 30 Democrats and 30 Republicans together. That's 60 observers from both parties standing together doing the very same thing. And if you, if you, think, th- you think they're too far and you think that it, it doesn't work, change the law. Was there a point where you suddenly became very mindful of the fact that a historically stunning story was unfolding before our eyes? Yes, that's a wonderful view and a wonderful perspective. I, I feel that what with the false allegations of voter fraud, I've covered that for years in Fox News, and election fraud, uh, and and a so-called cons- widespread conspiracy to steal the election. It is not possible. It is not true. And I began to feel that this is more than just telling the facts or showing the truth. 
this is uh, the essence of what we do as journalists in this country. It is, uh, uh, I don't want to sound too on a high horse, but as, as if we're defending or protecting the republic. It's not partisan. It's not slanted. It's not a view. It's, I feel that the very essence of our democratic process, the credibility and integrity of, of the foundations of our freedom in this nation mm. that we, we've survived on for, for two centuries could be threatened if people do not have faith in the election system. And that's why I think this is so crucial and this is such a dangerous time if people believe the falsehoods. Lately, when you Google Eric Sean and Fox News, the headlines that come up are Eric Sean systematically debunks all the accusations. Eric Sean surgically pulls apart all of the claims of voter fraud. You're getting a lot of attention here. And it's interesting to me because I, I feel the same way, but as a business channel anchor, I'm really looking at, at business and, and pocketbook issues and, and politics. Of course, this has affected the markets. So we've covered it from that perspective. But uh, tell me what kind of guidance you get or don't get. Because people always say to me, does Fox tell you what to do? And I, I always say, never once, never once yeah. has anyone told me what to say. That, I think that's a great point. And people always think there's some grand conspiracy. I, I've actually been here for 31 years, uh, starting at Channel 5 in 1989. We started Fox News in 1990. No one's ever told me what to say. It's just the facts. It's uh, Jimmy Breslin had a great quote one day. I was at federal court. Breslin, the great uh, iconic oh, yeah. New York journalist. Uh, there's something happening. And, and, and someone said something about some, something that he was upset over with the story. And he said, no, he snapped. No. It's none of our business. If it's true, put it in the paper. Go have a drink. Let society sort it out. <laughs> now, I, I don't know if they teach that at the Columbia School of Journalism, but that's it. These are the facts. Here are the facts. I'm surprised. At all, I'm actually Liz, surprised yep. at all the attention I have been getting because it's just reporting. I'm not doing anything different than we've always done. It's, it's everything you have absolutely always been done. And let me flip it over. Because the president's team had claimed ballot machines and software made by Dominion were at the heart of this grand conspiracy. You landed an interview with Michael Steele, the Dominion spokesperson, mm -hmm. and you were just as tough on him. But what did you glean from that interview regarding the Trump accusations that this machinery was somehow nefarious? It, it's not possible. I knew it going into this because I've starting 2008, we covered these issues uh, of, of the machines. You can't so-called, uh, one allegation was that the machines count votes for President Trump less than infractions, less than Joe Biden. That a Biden vote is worth one and one quarter and a Trump vote is worth three quarters. That's not true. It's impossible. The stuff isn't, doesn't work that way. That this is somehow guided from, the, from Venezuela or Germany through the Internet. These machines are not connected to the Internet. <laughs> You know, one uh, one I'm issue. Sorry, I'm laughing, but the Venezuela part of it really blew me away. And then, of course, the accusation that Rudy Giuliani or Sidney Powell, one of the attorneys, had made was that Brian Kemp, the governor, was somehow in on some conspiracy to help communists in Venezuela. 
Yeah, that was because his, uh, when he was Secretary of State, his former chief of staff went on to lobby for Dominion. So they were spinning all these uh, allegations of some type of nefarious uh, conspiracy. It's not possible. Thank goodness in this country it's not a federal election. 10,000. We have 10,000 different election districts, states, counties, and all they of them. can all be in on it. They can all, and they all do it a different way. And the proof is in the pudding. Look what happened, as you said, the Liz in Georgia. Uh, the uh, machines, Dominion machines are there. They uh, had a hand recount. The recount matched what the machines said. And finally, the other point that, I, that is delicious on this in terms of this allegation, the Dominion machines used in Pennsylvania are used in, I think, 14 or 17 counties. It's not statewide. Yeah. Guess who those counties voted for? 52% for President Trump. So the Dominion machines gave the election in the counties they were used for the president, not for Joe Biden. So uh, all that is, is not possible. It's all backed by a paper trail. That's why paper ballots are so important. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that voting by mail from now on is really going to be a, a growth opportunity for uh, voters? And I say that because I've been voting by mail absentee for a long time in the state of New Jersey it's really convenient. And then, of course, during the pandemic, why would you stand in line aside yeah, from getting yeah. the, the I voted sticker? I mean, what is the benefit here? Yeah. Oh, you know, it's, it used to be such a theatrical experience. I don't know if the folks listening, a Shoop voting machine was the old machines from the 50s mm. that were mechanical and you'd walk in behind the curtain. And, there, and it, it was so theatrical and dramatic and it yes. was an event and you would pull the levers and it would make a noise and a clank. And that was voting. That was like a theatrical, wonderful experience of democracy. Sadly, we don't have that when you just put the machine into an optical scan reader, which is what we have now. Um, Mail-in voting, I think, will grow in popularity. Five or six states now use it. Washington State was the first one that started full time. Colorado, Utah, among the states that uh, basically now are running their elections almost all by mail-in voting. So I think you're right. And I think it largely can be trusted. Yes. The issue is, can the post office be trusted to deliver a guarantee to get your vote to the Board of Elections? The answer to that is having the Board of Elections officials get a website so you can track your vote, so you can log on. And some states do have that so you can see if your vote was received and if your vote was counted. I want to ask you about that moment in Philadelphia, the news conference with the three attorneys for the Trump legal team, Rudy Giuliani, Sidney Powell, who's since been kicked to the curb, and Jenna Ellis. It was, you want to talk theater and drama. To me, it was this slow motion train wreck because there were all kinds of accusations being thrown out. Rudy, of course, was sweating the hair dye. And suddenly they blurt out, release the Kraken. This yes. mythical sea snake that brings down And all I'm thinking to myself is, what is going on here? What went through your mind when you saw all of that? Uh, you're right. Uh, I've uh, covered and known uh, Mayor Giuliani since 1984 when he was the U.S. attorney here in New York. And it was pretty stunning. Uh, if you have these accusations, allegations, put them in the court papers and and and, and, and put it before the legal system where it can be fairly judged and properly judged. Because when you're at a news conference or talk to the media, you're not sworn. It's not a sworn statement. 
under oath where you have to tell the truth. That, I think, is the tragedy of all this, that there have been so many claims publicly, not just on the president's Twitter, but by uh, his campaign and other uh, and, and supporters that have no uh, reality to reality. And when they get into court, they say exactly what you just said. Uh, other lawyers in, in federal court saying, no, we're not we're not suggesting there is no fraud, saying they had they have found none. And that is that is the twisting, sad part of all this, that when they try to use the media, which they do to get a uh, false message out, which it is, is is lost. Viewers, news consumers don't keep in mind that what they are told may not be true. The, the bottom line proof is, did they say it in court? Is it in the court papers? If it's not, that's all you need to know. And it was not. In fact, when pressed by the judge, Rudy Giuliani had to admit, no, sir, I am not accusing this situation of being tainted by fraud. So game, set, match. They have had a legal rejection after legal rejection. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. I know a lot of you have had this experience because for those of us who in 2020 were all sent home and we were stuck in a lockdown during the pandemic, we had a lot of time on our hands and I saw an ad for Masterclass and I thought, I want to better myself. I want access to all of these brilliant people who teach you things. With Masterclass, you can learn from the best to become your best. Masterclass is the only streaming platform where you can learn and grow with more than 200 plus of the world's best and smartest. For just under 10 bucks a month, an annual membership with Masterclass gets you unlimited access to every instructor. And I don't care, you can wake up one morning and say, I want to learn about business. And then another where you say, I want to learn how to survive in the wild if I have no water and no fire to make me warm. You can access Masterclass on your phone, on your computer, smart TV, or even in audio mode. And the classes totally make a difference. Don't don't wait another moment to start your learning journey with Masterclass. Right now, our listeners get an additional 15% off any annual membership at masterclass.com slash Liz. That's 15% off at masterclass.com slash Liz. Masterclass.com slash Liz. I need to know where this steel spine of yours came from and how it started to develop. You're a New York City kid with a classic mm. Upper West Side story. Um, for people who don't know, Eric's mom, Melba Ray, was an actress on the soap opera Search for Tomorrow. Tell us about your hot childhood. Yes, yes that's true. Uh, she was on uh, Search, so I used to go visit her at uh, the studio, CBS studios on the West Side when I was a kid. And I've always loved the news. So I would go over and say, hi, mom. Bye, mom. And I would run down to the Walter Cronkite news area. And, and something about the news is that everyone knows you're a kid running around. So they assume you're someone's kid. So, uh, but they didn't know who I was. So I was kind of given free reign. And I remember looking at Uncle Walter. He had a, a small, right off the, the CBS Evening News set, he had a small office with a vertical window and his Emmys were lined up on a shelf above him. And the crew guys, I've always loved the crews and the crew guys because they'd let you in. And I'd go into the control room. I would stand next to the camera when Douglas Edwards would anchor this, the midday news at, at uh, 11.55. What year was this? Uh, this was uh, early 1970s. Okay. My mom died in, of a cerebral hemorrhage suddenly in, in seven, of an aneurysm in 70, end of 71. So I was uh, of age to be involved with, you know, exposure to news. Um, 
John Chancellor's daughter went to school with me. And so you grew up in Manhattan, you, you know, you kind of get exposure to these people. And I st- helped start a public access studio in, in Manhattan uh, on public access channel C and D. And that's where I started in high school. High school. And then when you were graduating from college, tell me what your first job in television was. I gave myself a year to get a job or I'd go to law school. And I got a job at Our Town, which is the weekly newspaper in Manhattan for 150 bucks a week as the managing editor. And uh, I got a call one day from the local public uh, TV station, Channel 31, WNYC, to come get a reporter to come and do an interview. And I said, I could do that because I did that on public access. And that's that's where it began and I, after college. And, if, and about a year and a half, I, I moved, went to Channel 11, WPIX, as a writer, reporter, and quickly became a reporter. And in 1989, switched over to Channel 5, uh, the Fox station. And then you helped, is it launching Fox News? You were part of the, the affiliate service, correct? Yes. Yeah, we, in 1989, when I first came to, to Channel 5, Fox, uh, the, the stations, they had a very strong lineup of stations. New York, uh, TT, uh, KTTV in Los Angeles, the station in Chicago, Washington, WTTG. But there was no network and there was no national presence. In 1990, I was called in. They said they wanted me to uh, they want to start something for all the stations and for the Fox Network. And they said, we want you to be the national correspondent in that anchor. I'm like, wow. Uh, OK, when do I do this? And I thought it'd be one or two things, uh, you know, a year, something when something happened to go do it for all the stations. And about two weeks later, there was a horrible murder in, in Florida. And we went down to Gainesville, Florida. Oh, yeah. And they and I said and I, I did the story and I'm like, what do I say? Do I do do I say every tag for every station? Because when you're up, you do, do do the one for L.A., do, do the one for New York. So I said Fox News. So I think that was the first time <laughs> someone did Fox News. <laughs> uh, we uh, we did national reporting and anchoring from the uh, from uh, Kuwait and out in the Persian Gulf when we attacked Iraq to the O.J. Simpson trial, the 2000, almost 2000 live shots of the O.J. Simpson trial. Travel with Bill Clinton, 92. We had a we covered the conventions in 1992 with the with the big skybox that said Fox News. And we did all of that. And then when uh, Roger Ailes came to start the Fox News channel, that was 1996. And you were part of that. But I hear great stories from the originals. We call ourselves the originals. I'm an original, but only for the business channel. But you were an original for Fox News. And I, I talked to people who started in the D.C. Bureau. They said they didn't even have desks. They sat on orange crates because there was no <laughs> furniture. People don't understand that a startup in news is literally that, starting from zero. Well, every other network, whether it's CNN or MSNBC had launched by then, CBS, ABC, they had decades of infrastructure I mean, NBC had the Baghdad Bureau. Shep Smith told me once, he said, all we were was one live truck twirling around the city. That's exactly, that's what we did. I was myself, my cameraman, and a producer. And basically, that's it. And we'd, you'd show up and CNN have 30 people, we'd have three. Um, <laughs> my, favorite, my favorite story was in uh, President Clinton goes to uh, the Middle East, and when they signed the Treaty of Aqaba, uh, the peace treaty, and we went to Syria, and I'm standing with Assad, uh, Assad's father, 
And uh, I went to feed my tapes at the, uh, the way the networks work, they have a pool for all the networks. And I said, where do I go feed the video that I have to feed back to Fox? So I walk into the pool and I say, I'm here to feed my tape. And they say, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Eric Sean from Fox News. And the, the guys from NBC or CBS turn around, look at me and go, Fox? Fox doesn't have the news. Hey, Bart Simpson is here. Hey, <laughs> you don't look like Homer. Bart Simpson is here. Oh, did they razz me? Uh, oh, my God, did they razz me? And that, But that's what we faced. And I said, well, just, just you wait. Just you wait. And now see where we're at. Yeah, we did a lot of just you wait and see. Uh, <laughs> listen, they tried. They tried to kill Fox News before it was even born. They mm-hmm. tried to do that with Fox Business even worse because mm-hmm. they saw what Fox News did, which was start with nothing. And in five years was beating CNN, wow. which is quite stunning. It's uh, amazing. And- it's attitude. Attitude. And I think people see that we're real. Uh, no phoniness. Uh, it's the real thing. And, and it's attitude and caring. And I, um, I, think that, I think that's what it is. When did you land the weekend anchor slot? Uh, that came about right after 9-11. Uh, we were so stretched that I started uh, anchoring during the weekend and, and, and stayed with that. And um, I've done a lot of weekday anchoring, but I think the, the weekends are an interesting time because it's like a Sunday newspaper. You know, you get a, a rolling audience and, and people kind of check in and out, uh, which is why I, I that's how I look at it. You know, I used to look, used to, you, well, I guess you used to look forward to getting the Sunday paper and there was the, the front of the paper and then there was the business section. Then there was the comics. You love the comics. You give the, and then there were feature Sports. stories and everything. That's kind of what yeah. we have tried to do. But the news has been so hectic. It's been as busy as a weekday. And as we know, news breaks on the weekends. I started off in local news, then went to CNBC, now Fox Business, but we know what happened with Osama bin Laden. That was a weekend. Uh, All the biggest stories happen on the weekends. Uh, So I I always was the weekend anchor in local news, and I loved it because it doesn't matter. You know, explosions and murders, don't look at it, oh, it's Saturday, forget it. Yeah. So you didn't lobby for this position. No, it just kind of came because no one else was in the building. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) opportunities will fly past you. Grab them. Yes. For years, every time I happen to watch Fox News, you were at the United Nations. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about your niche coverage of that because it became world renowned and award winning. You know, some might say that when you arrived at the United Nations, it was seen as sort of a sacred cow. No reporter could be critical. You'd be shut out. At what point did you realize, you know what, I got to take that risk because what I am seeing is horrifying? Uh, The United Nations is City Hall on steroids. And I took uh, the same principles that I applied to covering New York City Hall uh, up a few blocks over to the east on First Avenue to this, which which it is a city hall on steroids and no rules. Uh, It had been, as you're right. Uh, Look, the mission, the humanitarian mission is spectacular people who, who deeply care, uh, the issue of international peace and security, something else. And it's very compromised, of course, by the makeup of the Security Council with Russia and China's uh, continual veto and, and uh, the dictatorships and the human rights abusers and others who are in such power. Uh, it, it, is, it, it, is, it is strayed from its original 
mm-hmm. uh, humanitarian noble mandate into something that is just totally decayed in some areas. Uh, FDR would be rolling over in his grave. So we went there. We went there with that attitude of, wait a minute, uh, billions of dollars of American taxpayer money go to, go to this organization. Is it accounted for? How is it being spent? What are we doing? What is the mission? Uh, how much influence does the U.S. have here? So that's what we try to, I try to apply plain old gumshoe city hall statehouse reporter rules uh, to a place where I think the press corps basically think that they're also part of the diplomatic corps. And they're not, they should be holding it to a higher standard. To me, one of the most significant moments in UN history was when Libyan strongman Muammar Gaddafi was finally invited to speak in 2011, where he was invited back into the fold of the UN General Assembly. His allotted time was about 30 minutes. What happened? Oh, he ignored that. You remember, he went on for 90 plus minutes, an hour and a half. And then at the end, he, uh, when Ban Ki-moon, the secretary general, sitting behind him at the, the, that stately green marble podium, he, he, he went up and threw his papers at Ban Ki-moon's face. Um, it's wild. I, having said, Liz, what I've said about the UN, I have to tell you, it, the General Assembly Week is actually spectacular. It is like the Oscars. It's the real life Oscars and Emmys and everything rolled into one. You walk in the hallway and uh, Sharif, the, the prime minister of Pakistan, is like walk, wave, looks, smiles at you. And I gave him a thumbs up. You know, uh, Ahmadinejad is sitting walking right past you in the hallway. I mean, it is just wild. One day, uh, Hugo Chavez, remember the sulfur speech when he got up yes. there and s- said that President Bush was like, he smells the sulfur. He was coming down the stairs. And where, where else in the world can you? I started. I, there's some tricks as reporters that you have. I'm sure that you have them in your pocket. You try to get eye contact and, and, and make a human connection with, with the, the person, with the newsmaker. I did that with Gorbachev. There's an old trick. If you have a Soviet or Russian, you go you yell the name out. Comrade, comrade Gorbachev. And they stop and are stunned. And that happened with me and Gorbachev. He came right over. Chavez, after that speech, is coming down the stairs and he's 20 feet from me. And I started yelling out in the worst Spanish on purpose, saying, uh, Presidente uh, Chavez, Por que o presidente puxa o diablo? Por que o pray? Por que? Por que? He starts <laughs> laughing. You make the connection. I, then I said, aqui, aqui, vamanos aqui, por favor. Aqui, aqui, ora, aqui, aqui. And he's laughing and he comes over. You get a 10-minute interview with him. So uh, it, there's no other place like it on earth to be able to have this access and ability for us as yeah. news people to world leaders. Right. For me, it was like Davos of, you know. Oh, yeah, you do that. Yes. You're looking at, at Ahmadinejad of Iran and literally in the next room is Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel. Right. Uh, just incredible moments like that. But you also landed an interview with Pakistani Prime Minister Benazir Bhutto, the right. first woman to head a democratic government in a Muslim majority nation. What struck you about her? Her intelligence and her grace and her dedication to uh, humanitarian issues and freedom. And uh, I was just so struck when I, when she came in for that interview. And it was just a few months before she was assassinated, uh, just a few months later. Uh, talk about a, a global hero, a role model for people around the world, uh, especially uh, growing up in the conditions that, or in the society that she, she comes from. Uh, you, you know, Liz, I'm sure you've had this, whether they're, world leaders or regular folks, you are so struck 
and have a list of your own personal heroes who who've really touched you. And that's, I think, the, the glorious personal grace of what we do, uh, whether it's um, talking to uh, whether I, I'm very friendly with the uh, family of Otto Warmbier. Uh, uh, Cindy Warmbier and Fred, the parents, uh, have been very involved with that story. And you get a personal connection with them, whether it's them or whether it's somebody picking up the phone and it's Rudy Giuliani calling me uh, on the phone. That, that, I think, is what you take from this business the most, helping people, the, helping people, telling their stories, trying to do good, as corny as that sounds, but from a personal level, the, the personal inspiration. Uh, that you get, that you can have hope. And no matter how negative things seem to be, there are good people in the world and there will be, and, and goodness, I really believe this, goodness, hope, and, 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 and righteousness will prevail. I know it sounds corny, uh, but I think after decades in the news business, and I'm sure you feel the same, it's the human spirit triumphs. But on the day-to-day basis, Eric, I don't know about you, but, and I've learned this in local news, You've got to walk in with a very critical eye. And if you walk into the murder scene and the husband sobbing over the wife's body, my first thought is he did it. You know, you have to be very tough and very cynical. And in our level, whether it's the world leaders or top business people from Warren Buffett to Bill Gates, people say, wow, wow, you got to interview him. No, I didn't get to interview him. I interviewed him and I threw curveballs at his head. You know, you got to assume that everybody's guilty. <laughs> you know, it doesn't that. mean you have to yes. be negative, but I mean, at some point, you can't be starstruck at all, yeah. no matter who it is. Yeah, you're there. You're there to tell the truth. You're there to get get through the story. You're there to get through their BS, and that's what that's what we we're that's what we do uh, at, at the end of the day. And when I um, in in the recent election issues, when I see I guess in some way I'm going up against a president of the United States. I don't see it that way. I just see it as we're trying to, I'm trying to as do what reporters that anywhere would do. We just get the truth out. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and that's what we do. Um, but you do, you're right. You become a street reporter. I think in this business, you got to be a street reporter. Uh, you got to be out in the streets. You got to climb the stairs. That's what Brazil would say. You've got to climb the stairs meet people, get out there. And that's really the secret. Anyone who wants to get into the news business, I'd say, just go out and do it. Start, yeah. you, you can have, you, you can start a blog. Anybody, you're interviewing, you know, you sit down on a sooty curb after a, a fire where people have died mm-hmm. and you sit down, you dirty your clothes, you talk to the victims and you're not better than anybody else, but you're there yeah. to inform. That's the thing. You're there to inform. One last thing on the UN in 2018, you talk about, you just said BS, right? In 2018, the UN issued 21 resolutions or known as condemnations, right, of Israel. Syria, which was dropping chemical weapons on its own people, was issued just one resolution against it. Venezuela, starving its own people, got zero. Does the world need to rethink how much attention it gives to the United Nations? Yes, it's become an ineffectual talking shop in many ways, unfortunately. I think the, on the humanitarian aspect, it, it does good work uh, in terms of uh, a moral, ethical leader. It has severely failed. When the most egregious human rights abusers on the planet are members of the Human Rights uh, Council in, in Geneva, 
when uh, yes, when, on and on and on, and it and and obviously Israel constantly uh, uh, singled out uh, over other nations. That's beginning to change a bit, but you still have the power structure, and now China creeping in, uh, taking over some of the structure, and that's that's the shame of it. Um, I wrote a book called "The UN Exposed: How the United Nations Sabotages uh, American Security and Fails the World," and sadly. Uh, I think if it if it did work on a uh, international security even playing field, we, you know Kim Jong Un wouldn't be having a, a bunch of nuclear bombs, and um, mm. and, and you just hit it on the head. You're right, it, it, but uh, I, as I said before, I don't give up. We go every September, and when there's as news warrants, trying to hit him with the hard questions. What's next for you, Eric? You're the weekend anchor. You have number one ratings. You just charge ahead. You've become must-see TV. You challenge everybody. You are, as I said, emotionless when it comes to one side or the other. You, you got a, I think you got a future in this business, kid. <laughs> Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. We'll keep on doing what we're doing. I thank you. Such kind words from you. Uh, we'll do what we're doing, and, and uh, I'm going to throw a curveball, and that's Jimmy Hoffa. We do a series on Fox Nation called Riddle, The Search for James R. Hoffa. And we have another show coming up in January or February. So uh, uh, that's kind of my outlet. We, uh, we do have a great lead right now that we're working on. And I would say just just watch Fox News and Fox Nation a few months from now. We're not there yet. Uh, so to, to, for a concrete answer is, is let's see what happens with Jimmy Hoffa. For the other answers, let's see what happens with the world. <laughs> indeed, indeed. Eric, what an honor. Thank you so much. I love working with people like you. For those of you who don't know, I, I, I mean, I see Eric running in the hallways. This is pre-pandemic, and we pass each other really quickly. But lately, I've been, spent a lot of time reading and watching, and I thought, I gotta get this guy on. Everyone talks to Liz. Well, thank you, Liz. Let's, let's, it's great to have you on. Great to have you with us. I'm so so honored that you're a colleague, and I and I. I thank you for this time, really. My pleasure, my pleasure. And uh, you know what, you guys, I give my time every Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, for the Claim and Countdown on the Fox Business Network. That's my day job, but I'm so glad you're joining us for Everyone Talks to Liz. We'll see you next time. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.